Thank you for listening to the sermons from St. Timothy's Church. For more information, check out our website at stttimothysstores.org or visit us at 6 p.m. on Sundays at the Nathan Hale Inn. And we do, Father, as a community and as individuals, we do proclaim how great is our God through all seasons, through all circumstances, through all situations. We trust in your goodness and in your greatness, Father. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, you guys can have a seat. Our scripture today is Mark 8, verses 27 through 38. And I'll read our scriptures, and I invite you to just close your eyes, relax, take a deep breath, and allow God's word to speak to you. However, whatever he wants to highlight, whatever he wants to emphasize, use this as an opportunity to enter into prayer. And say, Jesus, what are you speaking to me today about? What are you highlighting for me today? And then we'll leave a little silence for you to just to meditate on what the Lord has spoken. So Mark 8, 27 through 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Father in the silence, speak to us through your word. Yeah, but I think you guys have really hit on, like, it's a, it, Jesus poses an interesting question. Like, we don't expect Jesus to say to us, who do you think I am? Because we, we have all the, we know what scripture says, you're the good shepherd, you're the light of the world, you're the bread of life, you're the, you're the hope, you're the, you're the, the light, the way, the truth, and the life. Like, we know who, who we're supposed to say Jesus is. 
we know that we've, we've, we've read the scriptures we know what the words are but we have to remember that for the disciples they don't know we have the privilege of 2,000 years of church history and tradition and teaching and they're just walking and talking with this guy every day trying to figure out what is going on so when he says who do you say I am it's not like a trick question it's not trying to um, like in Sunday school every right answer is Jesus but here it's genuinely like where are you guys what are you thinking how are you feeling you've been with me on this journey you've seen healings you've seen miracles you've seen people rising from the dead you've seen crowds of hundreds gathering you've seen me feed crowds of hundreds with two fish and five loaves of bread Um, so what are you thinking who do you say that I am and who do the people say that I am um and so, the, and this, this interesting it raises some interesting questions for us as well, of who do we say Jesus is? Which is, in just a minute, I'll hand it over to Jerif, and he will kind of share for him who Jesus is, because we've talked about this before. There's the head knowledge of who Jesus is, then there's also the heart knowledge and the lived experience of who Jesus is. So I think for all of us, we can all rattle off who Jesus is, but it's really powerful to have a lived experience. This is who Jesus is for me. This is where Jesus has met me in my journey. These are the highs and these are the lows that I have walked with with Jesus so that I know Jesus is my good shepherd. I know from my experience that Jesus is my hope and that Jesus is my forgiveness and Jesus is my bread of life. So, no pressure, Dreef. <laughs> uh, but it's important to know that we, we were kind of fixated on Peter thinking about what did Peter say to Jesus? Like, what is that moment? And it's interesting to remember that most of Mark's gospel probably comes from Peter. Tradition says that Peter was probably one of the primary sources for Mark's gospel. So Peter's not trying to hide this. There's no sense that this was an embarrassing moment for Peter where he questioned Jesus and then he doesn't want the history books to carry this down. Like, Peter is one of the primary sources, or tradition says Peter is a primary source for Mark's gospel. So Peter is sharing that this happened, that he that he rebuked Jesus, that he said, Jesus, hey, enough about the you dying stuff. We don't care about that part. We want to hear more about the healings, about the miracles, about all the amazing stuff that we're going to do and that you're going to take us along with you. Because, like, at this moment, he's riding high. Like, Jesus is, everywhere he goes, crowds gather, people rush to him, and Peter is the inner circle. So he doesn't want this to stop. This is This is kind of what he thinks is the pinnacle this is what he thinks is as good as it gets he's riding the wave of discipleship thinking it's only going to get better and better the crowds are going to get bigger and bigger the miracles are going to get more and more and more amazing so jesus stop talking about dying because there's no room in my plan for that and one of the most interesting parts of this this passage that really strikes me every time I read it is when Jesus so Jesus rebukes them and then he says to everyone not just Peter but everyone in the crowd so he's not just talking this inner circle of disciples he's opening it up to everyone who wants to listen he says whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it So up until now, following Jesus has been exciting. It's been exhilarating. It's been going from success to success, from glory to glory. Um, And Peter has been part of it. And Jesus is saying that's not all there is. That's not what discipleship is. And they're going to find out in the weeks and the months after this 
that Jesus is more than they ever imagined and expected. They're picturing a Messiah who's going to come and by military might and force save the Jewish people. But that's not who Jesus is. That's not what Jesus is going to do. And that's not what Jesus has in store. But nevertheless, Peter is going to give his life to following this man. It's going to forever change his future, forever change his history. Not just his head knowledge of who the Messiah is, what he's read in the scriptures, what he's heard in the prophecies from Old Testament times. They've been prophesied, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. So Peter knows all of this. But now he's having a a heart-to-heart, face-to-face encounter with the Messiah. That's going to change what that question is. Who am I? Who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? So Peter's answer is going to be completely transformed as he encounters Jesus. So now we're going to invite Darif up to kind of talk about who Jesus has been for Darif. How what he knows in his head has interacted with what he's experienced in his life. Whoa. Um, it's funny because I feel like... I have done this a million times already in terms of talking in front of a whole lot of people that I don't know. Um, But the good news is that I I do know some, if not all of you. Um, And so this is different, but it's it's different for a different reason. Um, I feel like when I'm in front of a classroom, I have the autonomy to be me, right? And I have the autonomy to hold myself accountable to what I think is right. But this is the first time where I'm standing, you know, in front of a church to talk about my spiritual journey, but with the very heavy hope that what I say is in line with what God wants me to say. So it's not just me anymore that's in charge, but the Lord. So that's the burden that I can't come with. That's sort of the heavy uh, weight that's on my shoulders. Um, But when Emily asked me to really discuss this question of who God is to me, for me, I really had to think about that. I'm like, it sounds like an easy question, but it's it's a really hard one. Um, And it was a difficult question, too. And for me, I'm like, I might be in trouble if the question is who God is to me or who Jesus is to you. I might be in trouble if I don't know who I am. Who is the me? Who is the me? And how can I then talk about who God is to me if I don't know who I am? And so I had to then disentangle and disengage another question not who God is to me but I'm not being asked who I am to God because I think who I am to God is a different question right that question is how the Lord sees me and that question is a question of fact that is not a question of doubt that is a question of reality that's a question of hope that's a question of faith But who I am to God seems more tenuous. It seems more difficult. And so for me to answer that question, I realized growing up, I wasn't sure who I am. Who I am, who the world told me I am, who I thought I am, who Jesus said I am. 
was. I wasn't sure. And so for me then, I, I had to live life not knowing who I am, but rather I realized looking back, I had to live it with the hope of someone I want to be. And so that's how I'm going to tackle this. You know, who did I hope I would be in order to discover the question who I hope I um, who I am to uh, who's God to me. So growing up for me, the first question for me, there are four things that I hope I would be for one, someone who loves God. And for me, that love was defined by obedience that I would do as the Lord would want me to do. Second, I hope I would be faithful to God. And that in times of doubt, in times of difficulties, that God will be my problem solver and my promise keeper. And third, I hope to be someone who love others. That is someone who was compassionate someone who was merciful and someone who was not judgmental and finally I hope to be someone who was patient because I realized much of my disappointment growing up or life's disappointment was about things that I didn't get and then I had to come to terms with why I didn't get them and so growing up I had a very active sort of investigative mind And I would look at other people and I would be like, okay, why is it that my friend had a dad but I didn't? Or when I went to high school, why is it that their parents could come and speak so eloquently in defense of their child and my mom couldn't? Because she didn't have the education to do that. Why is it that she couldn't drive me to school in the morning in the ways that I would turn on the TV and see here in the States how your mom or dad would pick you up from school? That never happened. I had to tread my way to school often by myself. And so for me, I had to reconcile those disappointments. And how I had to do that was to say, I hope I'm this person who is patient and that there is a God-given patience in me and that I could wait. And so these are the four things. Now, for me, faith has always been a journey of hope. Hope for the circumstances that I had that weren't good and hope that one day they would get better. And I was looking at some Bible verses about this question of hope. Why is it that hope kept coming back to me time and time again? And I saw one in Isaiah 40 verse 31 and it reads quickly, But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And so this idea that hope has this such a tremendous power in it, that you could become an eagle's wings, right? That you could run and not be weary, and that you could walk and not be tired. 
And so for me, there was power in hope, power to do and power to undo what was done that I didn't like, and power to create what I didn't have and wanted. But hope also had the power to claim, the power to move things. And so for me, it was hoping to be this person of God that could have some kind of power over my own life. And so I guess we're back at the question of who is Jesus to me? And for me, that question is Jesus' hope. You know, when, for me, when the world prophesy sort of hopelessness, Jesus is hope. When circumstances breed setbacks, for me, Jesus was hope. When my tears would cry itself, sort of shrieks of painfulness, Jesus was hope. And when I think all hope was lost, hope stayed with me. Now, as an academic, I think I have to bring this up. But, (laughs) you know, sociology and sociologists often say that we are products of our environment. That how we were grown, what sort of family relationships that we had, what friendships we had, what we didn't have, all of those things left a mark. All of those things are byproducts of who we are. And so, in a sense, all of us wear and carry with us a scar of just existence, of being here. And then I had to search the Bible to see where did I see those scars again? Because I saw them in my own life. And so I had to look and say, okay, where did I have, where have I seen them? And so when I think about when Peter denied Jesus three times, despite the fact that he had had sort of a VIP access to everything that Jesus has done, all the miracles, all the love, but yet he denied Jesus three times, not once, not twice, but three times. And for me, that was a reminder of the scar that the world has left on Peter. And when the disciples were in a boat and you know, the storm came and it seemed like the boat would capsize and they would go over and they knew the power of Jesus to do anything, but yet there was doubt and there was fear and there was a sense that this could be the end. And yet Jesus was right there. I look at that and I say, that's what it looks like when the world has left a scar on you. And I think about Jonah when he ran away from God and the Lord had to send a whale to come and get him, right? To get him in line in sort of divine compliance, to get him in line with the call and the duty and the promise of God on him. But yet he ran. For me, that's how I saw how the world left a scar on him. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they have been given everything. And they were told not to do this one thing. And yet they did. I saw that as 
the world to leave in a scar on them. And so I see scars all the time in the world. And sometimes I don't know what to make of it. I think about the Israelites and how they were the promised people of the Lord. The apple of his eye. And yet they had to walk through the wilderness for 40 years. That is a scar that the world has left on them. And so I didn't know who I am. Because the world had left so many scars on me. But hope in Christ allowed me to overcome. Hope in Christ allowed me to reimagine and to aspire. Hope in Christ gave me the tools that I needed so I could make sense of the world and sort of the lot that has been given to me, the, the hand that has been given to me. You know, someone might say, but what happens if you don't have hope? What happens if you can't even get hope? If, if hope is this unbelievable thing that could allow your way out of a dark space or out of a dark room, if it's this light, if it's this divine energy, if it's faith, then what happens when you don't have hope? And the reason why I like the word hope is because hope is one of those things that it's with you when it's there and it's with you when it's not. That when you don't have hope, you can say, I hope I have hope. And so it never loses you. It never sort of goes outside of you. It never abandons you. And it takes very little, if anything, to have it. And so hope exists when you have it, but it's even there when you don't. And it's this idea that hope is accessible. Now, it reminds me, too, of the story of Sarah... In Hebrews 11 verse chapter 11 11 where it says you know and by faith even Sarah who was past childbearing age was enabled to bear a child because she considered him faithful who had made the promise Sarah was about 90 91 and yet it was a belief in Christ that allowed her to give birth literally and metaphorically to this miracle and so the Bible describes Sarah's action as and by faith and by faith it says and so for me the question of what hope is is really a question of faith that I see hope as the basic requirement for faith that hope matured is really faith explored and so for me hope becomes when the Lord is able to keep you and so if this is how I saw myself who I hope I would be because I was incapable of having a sense of who I am then what I've realized is in hoping who I would be 
the Lord had shown me who I was who I am and the very thing very thing I thought I couldn't do I did and the very thing I thought I wasn't I was and am and for me that meant that there was something really deeply powerful about this term called hope and as I went through my life there were so many disappointments you know there are so many why questions that I have Lord why and they got so bad that at one point I had to say if I ask one more why question I'm going to go crazy asking why and so there was a sense then that I simply had to accept reality as it is but that acceptance wasn't just about accepting the terrible terms in which I grew up but that acceptance was the fact that I was going to place my hope in Christ that whatever the circumstances were that he would make a room that he would find a way to fix and so for me growing up in terms of when I look back and I say who is Christ to me for me he's hope because the thing about hope is that there's no guarantees to it in fact when you actually hear the word it suggests that you're already starting from a position of being decent sort of disenfranchised right if you if you want to hope for something the mere fact that you're hoping suggests the very thing that you're hoping for is not a real possibility <laughs> otherwise it wouldn't be a hope and so when you begin life from the position of hoping it seems that you're always starting from the position that you're handicapped And how do you make sense then of that handicap when you see other people not handicapped in the same way? And so for me hope was an easy way to define who Jesus was. Because not only was it an admission and an affirmation that the circumstances that I was in were bad, but also in it lies the possibility that the Lord could transform them. And so hope was something that gave me the ability to stand when I even couldn't find the feet to stand on. And even as I go through my journey here at Yukon, you know, the first four years is all about passing these PhD exams, doing well in courses, writing the best paper, going to conferences and proving how smart you are, proving how smart you are to your fellow classmates and your colleagues, proving how smart you are to your professors and your advisors, telling yourself that you're here not just for yourself but for your family, doing things always finding a justification but none of it seemed to really get at why I was here or why I was called to be here and for me that question about why I'm called to be here I can only find that in Christ and so when I was on the job market the 
just the me being ABD, it's a fancy term for saying when you are in the last year of your PhD program, your last graduating year, that's the year that you're going to graduate. And oftentimes, when people are in that final year, they never get a job. (laughs) (laughs) They don't. And they don't get a job because it's just so difficult. You are competing against not just people who graduated in that year or even the years before or at that university or in that state but you're competing against everyone across the country from people from Harvard, Yale and Princeton and you're competing against people from Oxford because anyone can apply to a position and so your odds are very very slim and they say well usually you have to take a couple years you know, doing what's called a postdoc, which is pretty much years of researching. And after that, they say, maybe you can get a job. But even then, it's still not sure. The point that I'm trying to make is getting a job is, is, is less than 1%. And I can say I have a job, and I had a job because I hope I could get one. And for me, that has always been the language of my faith. It's always been the language of my prayers. That I don't know if I can do this, Lord. But I hope you can get me through it. And the Lord has never said to me, your hope is not good enough. That you should move from a position of hope to something more strong. Because he has said to me, if you continue to hope in me, I will continue to be faith in you. And so that's who the Lord has been to me. Someone who is hope. And that hope has always manifested itself. In here in the position that I am in. A position that I think is a position of weakness. To always convert that into a position of strength. That's it. Thank you.